if I can deliver impact, even if I never deliver the final goal, if I've delivered pieces of impact, you know what? I am more content if I fail to, I'm not content, but I'm more content that I have done something of value on the way to success and that I will reap some other reward and success from it, even if it's not what I originally imagined. But that's only true if I deliver outcomes first. So outcomes are discrete. Outcomes have milestones. Outcomes are calculable. Outcomes are usually shorter term than the longer success. But the good news is like you can't have success without the outcomes. You can't have outcomes and still not have the goal you originally anticipated, but you will deliver something valuable to the world and to yourself. So, you know, that's the only way I contend with failure now, right? I can look back and be like, did I deliver impact? Did I deliver outcomes? Did I make something better for myself or someone along the way? And can I take those things that I learned and reconfigure them towards a new goal? And if I can, I can get to peace with failure. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. Today's guest is Sukender Singh Cassidy, a leading technology executive and entrepreneur. She's a board member and investor with 25 years of experience of founding and helping to scale companies, including Google, Amazon, and most recently, she served as the president of StubHub, which sold in 2020 for over $4 billion right before the pandemic and thrived under her leadership. She has been profiled in Fortune, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Business Week, and The New York Times, among others. She has been named one of Elle's powerful women, one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company, and one of the top 100 people in the Valley by Business Insider, among many other accolades. Our discussion today centers around several topics that many struggle with, failure, risk-taking, and changing direction. If you listen to this episode in full, I guarantee you that you will feel more confident when facing these challenges. We chat about Zukinder's unexpected and abrupt departure from StubHub and how she handled that and used it as an opportunity for growth. Zukinder and I get into the ins and outs of all things risk-taking, including why you must take them, how to know if it's the right one, and how to do it the right way. She also talks about why proximity and protecting the downside are crucial when taking chances. We also chat about the different types of failure that you will experience in life, how to plan for them how to overcome them, and why you can actually learn and grow more from unplanned setbacks. Sukinder unveils what must happen in order for someone to make the choice to take action and make a change, and if she thinks that some of us are wired to be bigger risk takers. Our combo also gets into how to surround yourself with the right people, common risk-taking myths, and how to become fulfilled and impactful long-term. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Sukinder Singh Cassidy to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Sukinder, welcome to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here, Doug. Yeah, I I thoroughly enjoyed your book, uh, Choose Possibility, that's coming out here soon. I mean, when this is released, I'm sure the book will be out. And it it really taught me, I guess, to give me practical tips to to better myself on taking risks. And I can see how people who who are going to read this are going to be able to improve the way they they handle risk, the way they handle adversity, the way they handle failure, the way they handle like really choosing themselves so they can grow personally and professionally. And I definitely want to get into certain aspects of the book. But before that, I know you've helped scale and and been very instrumental in companies like Google, Amazon, and most recently StubHub where you're the president. And and I know last year they, they got bought out by, I believe, via GoGo. And mm-hmm. you were kind of let go as part of a restructuring thing. So what was going through your mind when all that happened? I mean, obviously, it was something that I'm sure in, in many ways was unfortunate, even though I know you see failure as a, as a way for opportunity and growth. And then with that said, what were some things that you really did like when you looked internally to get introspective on how you were able to improve as as somebody personally and professionally? And how did you kind of reinvent yourself from there? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, a couple of things. So you're right. I was the president of StubHub, the CEO, and I joined the company. It was a division of eBay, hoping that I would get to lead it into, you know, acquiring others in the industry 
consolidating the industry and more effectively competing against Ticketmaster and then ultimately hopefully taking it public. And nine months into my tenure, the board of eBay decided that the CEO needed to sell the company, not let it be let it roll up other assets. So immediately, I found myself in a sales situation where I, my team led the sale. And to your point, like like nobody go woe is me. I mean, we sold the company for four billion dollars. But you are right that for me, it was personally exceptionally disappointing because I wanted to be the person who was you know going to go ahead and lead the company and instead I was leading a process to effectively you know most likely give up my own role right and in fact StubHub got bought by Viagogo a smaller competitor and the original founder of StubHub is the CEO of Viagogo so he clearly had ambitions to you know to ultimately own the combined company and drive it and so you know that was a situation where I I, I took a risk when I entered the job, and by the way, I, I would never regret that. But like it ended in a different way, and by the way, it didn't end in just one different way. And then I'll get to your question. It ended in two because first we sold the company on February 13th, so professionally a success for my resume, but personally, you know, a failure in that I wasn't going to get to be the person right who took the company forward. And so very amicable conversation with the new owner, saying, okay, like I will transition out. I mean, when the time is right, let me, you know, let. Let's finish this trans acquisition and I will move off into the sunset. So while I'm you know, grappling with that, while I'm still in the seat, COVID happens. Literally, we have not yet transitioned the company within 30 days. And so in 30 days, I'm facing another risk, which is not only am I not going to be the CEO, between me and like leaving, I also need to restructure the company to make sure it doesn't like go bankrupt on my watch, which is, you know incredibly scary as you can appreciate. And, you know, in 30 in 30 days we restructured the company and had to deal with well, we can talk about all of the fallout of, you know, what happened in live events. So so that was the backdrop, right? Personally disappointing, professionally a success, but personally very disappointing. And then like crisis professionally, when you think about being the CEO holding a live events company after you've been acquired, you're now owned by a private company. You don't have a gigantic balance sheet. You don't have eBay eBay's, you know, bank account behind you. And all of a sudden, 95% of your revenues disappear within a week. And they're not coming back anytime soon, which is what happened. So what was going through my mind are a few things. Number one, pre-COVID, pre-COVID, dealing with my personal disappointment and grappling, I think there were two or three things that, that held me steady. Number one, you know, I certainly recognized that to get the chance to lead StubHub left my resume, you know, much better off than before. If I wanted to go lead another company, you know, taking the risk to join StubHub was still a very good risk for me to take because I had been an entrepreneur for many years after leaving Google. And it was my entry back into sort of larger corporate life and proving that I could lead the company to a transaction, even if it wasn't the one I envisioned, you know, we did actually end up consolidating. So first of all, I realized that I was still you know, much better off than I had been when I started. And like I said, nobody should say, woe is me. But as you know, personally, when we think we're capable of something, we don't get to do it. For me, the strategy has always been, and this is the case in StubHub too, you know, the only way I know how to grapple with what something's going on is first of all, I retrench. Like literally, I'm like, okay, like my job right now is to just narrow my scope to getting this transaction done. And believe it or not, I had long wanted to write a book and to cope with my own disappointment, I, like, I was having a conversation and people were like, well, you know, with somebody I trust very deeply, he's like, well, if you want it, you know, you didn't expect to be unemployed, <laughs> but if this is your ambition, like maybe this is a good, good, like maybe this is the right thing to spend your time on to distract yourself. And quite frankly, whenever I am trying to cope, I retrench and I figure out like, what can I do to feel good about myself and keep myself occupied? And so I made the, made the decision that I was going to like use my, you know, my time unemployed to write this book. So like, A, I mean, keep in mind, you know, this sounds like really, like really simple stuff, but like, I think in my younger self, I just like would not forgive myself anything, right? So when we're younger, we're kind of filled with anxiety, you're filled with like stress about what's going to be next. I'm, I've now been employed enough times in my lifetime, (laughs) some by choice, some not, where the idea that I am employable, like I'm eminently employable. So I was able to be like, okay, what am I going to do? But then number two, I also realized that when I'm retrenching, I only want to do things that bolster who I am in that moment. So whenever I've had, you know, a big disappointment, I really don't want to expose myself to people who are going to, you know, be naysayers, tell me yet I, that I suck, ask me what I'm doing next. So I was like, what is my project to keep myself moving forward in this moment where I know I'm not, like I'm gonna have to deal with the disappointment for a lot of months to come that I'm not gonna get to run this company. And so that's why I was like, okay, what's the project? So that is my way of dealing with failure. Everybody deals with differently. I like get into like my own little space. I don't really wanna see the rest of the world. I just wanna do my thing. 
you know, and, and have something to occupy my time that can make me feel good about myself. Right. So everybody has a strategy. That's my strategy. And then COVID, like I said, COVID was a professional crisis. And in that moment, to be honest, I, I had a lot of fear as one does about what the company needed to do. But I would also say, and I said this to people, because I have been an entrepreneur and I have dealt with, you know, companies that didn't work of my own companies that did actually in the moments of COVID, I didn't, I, I felt capable like in that, like that was a moment of extreme adversity, but I felt capable. I was like, okay, like, you know, my whole career, I have had volatility and risk. This is not the order of magnitude I ever expected of risk at StubHub. I never expected to be facing a company that went from a multi-billion dollar business to, you know, virtually no revenue, like in the span of a week. Nobody would. But I did feel actually weirdly in those moments of adverse, uh, adversity around the professional side, I felt actually eminently capable. So it's, yeah, just because I sort of felt like, okay, I, I could do this, <laughs> you know, and then rallying the team around us. I was very proud of every single employee at StubHub because the agility they showed and under extreme stress, extreme stress, including like restructuring their own jobs. Forget my job. Like, you know, we restructured a hundred percent of the company, right? And people were restructuring their own jobs. The kind of courage I saw from people to kind of make sure StubHub was going to be around in a year and able to serve customers for the next 20 years. I actually have a huge respect for the agility I saw that route. Hmm. I love that. I love how you took some some dark moments in recent times and turned it into something meaningful, not just with the book, mm-hmm. but even some of the work mm-hmm. you've done on yourself. Cause I can imagine, well, first I want, I want to say, I think there's like these planned failures we have, like say, like I'll just use a yeah. relationship as an example where you, where you, you're in a relationship for a long time with somebody mm-hmm. you love, and then you, you know, it's just not working out and you know, you have to break up yeah. with that person and then you yeah. do it. And then that's seen as a failure. And then there's the, then there's these unplanned failures where you're in that mm-hmm. relationship and they break up with you unexpectedly. And then that I feel yeah. like in many cases is harder because there's so many questions that go unanswered. And then I mm-hmm. think it was also kind of twofold for you. I can imagine that you worked so hard in the corporate space to work your way up the ladder to finally get to mm-hmm. the point where you're in the most like notable job you've had, right? Being president and CEO yeah. of this yeah. massive company. And then you know, you, you, it feels like you have the rug pulled up, pulled out from underneath. Yeah. Of you, well, yeah. When you're hitting it like, yeah, no, I actually, I say to people, there are subway and coconut events. And I, I, this is not my own research, but this is like research that I found for the book, which, and I love this because you're hitting planned and unplanned failure or what right. I call planned and unplanned volatility. Right. So to be fair, like I said, nobody say, woe is me. When I took the subhub job, I was lucky to get it. And B, like I understood I was, you know, owned by a corporate parent who had had an activist before and who, you know, was competing with against Amazon and was under pressure. So my job, I'd always be under pressure, right, at StubHub because my parent was under pressure. So like I said, I they, like you could we call that subway volatility. I could predict that eBay itself would have uncertainty with regard to like what I'd get to execute all the plans I wanted at StubHub because there's uncertainty at the parent level. Like is there going to be an activist on the board? What does the board want? Right. That's called subway volatility. We can predict that there will be volatility. To your point, you can predict that you are going to have volatility in a relationship because it's not going well. And at some point you're going to need to break up. And then it's a question of when and timing or whatever, but there's a window, right? Those are called subway events. Then there are coconut events and coconut events are literally events that are characterized by researchers as like the probability that a coconut will drop out of the sky, hit you on the head and kill you. And we think those events will never happen to us. And what we've all learned in our lifetimes is they happen more than we think. Witness COVID, right? So I'm dealing with the volatility of kind of the subway event of like, okay, I thought, you know, I joined this job. I thought I was going to get to be the one to your point. And I wasn't, right? That, but I accepted that risk going into the job because, you know, my calculus was any other, like to your point, I, I have the privilege of leading this company. Anyway, I'm going to be better off, even if I don't get to land the plane. So there's some level of pain that comes with volatility and uncertainty that, when something doesn't break your way, but you understood the, the probabilities of that, right? And I understood that there was that risk and that risk materialized. Okay. The subway event is, a, is another kind of rug pulled out from under you, which is like, holy crap. Like, I just had to deal with that. And now I have to deal with this too. Like, you know, there was a part of me that's like, wait a second. Like, why am I the person holding the bag? I had to sell the company and I, I'm the person who, you know, is holding the bag when this crisis event happens. Like, I was supposed to be out of here already. <laughs> you know, I was, I was supposed to be done. I was supposed to leave on a high note. You know what I mean? Sail off at the sunset with this record outcome. And now here I am and I'm the person holding the company when its revenues are, are literally on their way to zero. Like, 
I, I, like, what did I do to deserve this? You know, of course, we all have those moments, to your point. But in subway events, you know, what's really interesting about subways and coconuts? In coconut events, these unplanned moments of extreme volatility, we all learn something about our own agility and competency in adversity that weirdly, we don't learn in subway events, right? You know what I mean? Like we kind of, because in coconut events, you have no choice but to rise the equation. In some cases, you have to take actually more risk to escape more harm, right? Like, you know, when there's a crisis in somebody's life, all of a sudden we act really quickly, right? Like we have no choice. We learn a lot about how agile we are. Yet when these subway events come, come, come and go, like the uncertainty of everyday life, we tend to think they're big events. Yes, you're right. Before COVID, I was obsessing every day about why I wasn't going to get to be in the role I thought I was going to get to be. You know, that was my big crisis. And then all of a sudden the big crisis comes and I'm like, okay, like hold steady here. Like we have to make sure this company survives. And so I don't know if that analogy makes sense to you, but I think that we do have planned and unplanned failures or planned and unplanned volatility. And when we plan volatility, we're so nervous and we like, we're like, what's going to happen? And we obsess about it. And then along comes this unplanned volatility that would put the planned volatility to shame. And in those moments, we realize how agile we are. Right. So I'm thinking of it, I guess, you know, to me, like I'm thinking about volatility, I think about like a, like a stock market portfolio and mm-hmm. you, you always want to like hedge against volatility <laughs> yeah. and risk to mitigate the risk. Yeah. So in the situations you're describing, like the unplanned mm-hmm. and planned volatility, I kind of want to bring it back to a relationship and even like career just to help get, yeah. p- put it into perspective. So how can people like mitigate that when they're in mm-hmm. a, like if they're in a committed relationship, like there's a chance that the, their partner might break up with them, but it's yeah. not like they're going to go out. That person should go out and just start like talking to other people so that they can feel safe. Right? Like that's not the way to do yeah. it. Just like yeah, if you're yeah. in a committed job, and you know, at yeah. some point something might happen, you shouldn't just go out and just start, start looking for other jobs because that could yeah, get yeah. you into some, tr- some trouble too. So have you found in your research or even in your own experience, there's a way to kind of hedge that volatility for somebody to kind of prepare yeah, as much right. as they can for that, the unexpected changes that may come? Yeah, sure. I, I, well, I, I have two strategies. First of all, let's take the strategy. Let's, let's talk about that relationship you described where, right. Where like, you still, in anything, you still love this person, but you realize it's not going well and they may break up with you. You're right. And let's say it's the same thing about a job. You know, the job's not going well. You realize like there's even a chance that somebody might let you go, but you're not ready to give up yet. Right. To me in that, those moments, the way I think about those moments is like, okay, now there's serious execution risk. So if I want this to turn out the way I want, instead of turning away from the situation, I've got to lean into it and I've got to take little risks to accelerate my impact. So what do I mean? Like, in that relationship where you and this other person may break up, you may like, they may break up with you. You may say like, I don't want to have the conversation because it may result in them breaking up with me. But you may also say like, I'm going to lean into this and have a conversation about five solutions. Like, I think we need to go to counseling or I think like, here's my partner. That's you taking a little risk to actually try and avert, right? The the volatility that you could see happening. and and, and, And basically I call that like, I call it taking the good kind of risks, the micro risks every day to accelerate our impact. Like when something is going awry, instead of like just waiting for the big failure to come, like what are the things you're going to lean in to do to have impact today? You know what I mean? To pivot, to iterate, like to try and turn this not into a failure. But because you and I both know, we never want to leave situations where you couldn't have done everything, right? And tried everything to turn that into a success. I don't know about you. Like, I don't just accept failures. Like, so what I'm trying to do in those moments is I'm pivoting. And sometimes the scary thing to do is to pivot. But if you don't pivot and you don't iterate, you are going to fail. Like it's certain. So why don't you take these little uncertainties? So that's the way I think about these, like, you know, macro volatility or this big failure that's impending. I'm like, okay, do you want to just sit back and let it happen? To me, that's the moment when I want to take little risks. I want to iterate. I want to pivot. I want to say something. I want to be a truth teller. I want to take a risk to be authentic. I want to do everything I can in that moment to know that I tried to change the outcome, Mm. you know, and then if it still happens, okay, but at least it won't be shame on me that I was afraid to take a little risk in order to avert the big risk. Like, come on. Like, that's the way I think about it, actually. That's like, that's, that's my thesis. And then to your point on like hedging, I mostly think about hedging strategies when I'm making a big choice. Do you know what I mean? Like once you've made the choice, you want to execute and take little risks to make that choice fucking work. Excuse my language. You want to make that choice work. But when we're on our way to making a big choice, you want to be as calculated as you can be, to your point. Like, so I'm somebody who I never like to choose one of one choice. If you ask me, 
I want to know, you know, I want to uncover every possibility. I want to, you know, I want, I mean, I'm the person with the spreadsheet. I like, I score every dimension of a big choice. I like make sure I have five choices and are alternatives to consider. So I take a lot of like risks with my time and energy before I make a big choice to be as calculated as I can be. So I'm trying to get the odds in my favor on a choice. That's true. And then once I'm in it, honestly, I'm counting on my own ability to take little risks and adapt every single day to maximize the chances that the choice I made works out the way I want. Mm. I hope that makes sense. Like that's actually how I think about risk. Totally. I mean, I, I think I loved how in your book, you talked about the myth that people just make this one massive choice in their life or this one, they take this one big risk and it changes their life forever because I, and I do, I do believe that in order to make a change, it does sometimes start with taking a bigger risk at times, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like yep. a- ending a marriage is a massive risk, right? Or like mm-hmm. leaving a job is a, can be a massive risk. Like, like going back to the gym and, and working out after an injury can be a massive risk. But after that risk, there's still other things you have to do along the way. It's not just that one <laughs> thing that happens. And then all of a sudden, like life's great because life still happens. And I definitely yeah. want to get into like there's, I know you have an equation and you have a process mm-hmm. to help people get better at taking risks, but I guess before we get into that, like, do you think that people are, there's some people that are just born risk takers versus others? Like, do you think people are just, you know, genetically or just some like, 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 like living on the edge a little bit more than, than other people do? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a good question. Well, let me come back to, I want to come back to one thing you said, which is like this quote, what I call the myth of the single choice. And you just hit it. Like, you know, often, sometimes we have to make a bigger choice, but I'm always like, okay, if you wanted to, if the only choices you ever made in your life are big, it gets pretty daunting. To your point, like, what are the little choices you can make before the big choice, to your point, right? Like, so sometimes there's no choice, but the big choice, I get that. But many times the way to get into motion and get even comfortable with the big choice is making some little ones around the way, right? Like, as you said, you're going to go to the gym, maybe if the gym seems daunting, you go for a walk, you know what I mean? But if you set yourself up to be like, hey, my first day in the gym, I, if I don't work out for an hour, like I failed. I'm sort of like, mm, not true. Maybe go to the gym for 10 minutes. Like, that's what I mean when I'm like, okay, if you can't make the big choice, ease yourself in with a small choice, you know, and, and just break it up a little bit. But, you know, so I think, I think that's really important. But I think when we talk about this kind of this notion of, of risk-taking and kind of frameworks, I really do believe that, and you, you, you know, you talked about it, like how do you get people comfortable? I think the idea of practice in building this muscle is everything. And I think it's about finding choices in our life and chances in our life that would require us to like practice risk-taking every day. So I know people don't think of this as a risk, but I do. I'm like, okay, if you're going to spend, you know, if you say you want to quit your job tomorrow, you know, but you're only going to quit your job tomorrow if you find the dream job, I would say, well, today and like back it up from the day you want to make the big jump. Like, I would take a hundred risks with my time to go discover 10 new careers. Like, and people won't do that. They just want to wait for the big choice to come to them. And I'm like, okay, this makes no sense to me. If you want to make the big choice, you should be willing to make, take little risks if you're willing to take a big risk. And often people are like, it's no risk or it's big risk. And I'm like, Hmm, I'm like little risks to lead to big risks. Right. Right. Exactly. And I think, I think you're right. And I think is, as far as the muscle, it's something that has to be worked every single day. I mean, I think, just like physical muscles need to be worked. There's these mental and emotional muscles need to be worked as well. Perseverance muscle, the, the failure muscle, the risk muscle, the chance muscle. So with that said, like, I, I know you, in your book, you explain that there's this equation that mm-hmm. like, essentially change happens when the fear of missing out or the fear of missed opportunity becomes mm-hmm. greater than the fear of failure. Talk about that mm-hmm. a little bit. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result, fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets, 
So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobst. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobst. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Yeah, I will. So this equation, and then I realized I didn't answer your question on, on uh, nature versus nurture. So I'll come back to that. So I think that we all are ruled by two fears, not one. And you hit it. The fear of missing out FOMO, which we all know, and fear of failure. And so we have been trained to think that if we want to get into action, let's just ramp our FOMO, right? Like if I just visualize the positive, I'm going to ask. But what we all know is you could have raging FOMO, but if your fear of failure is still bigger than your FOMO, you actually will make a change. So sometimes I say to people like, yes, of course we should visualize the positive and try and ramp our FOMO. But I think we should actively try and reduce our fear of failure by looking into what that failure is and imagining how we choose through a failure. Because we often find if you think like, oh, God, I'm not going to do this because I'm going to fail, as opposed to turning away from it, which is not going to get that fear equation working in your favor by reducing your fear of failure specifically, then what would happen if you started imagining the failure and tell me the five choices you would make? Because you know, I don't know if you, you may or may not have ever read Jeff Bezos' shareholder letter, but he talks about Amazon's comfort with risk-taking being all about the fact that most choices we make are two-way doors. You go through the door and you can come back. And, you know, if you can't come back, there's a dozen more choices you can make. There are very few things in life that are a one-way door. So I think once we imagine that we go through the door and the door doesn't lead where we expect, the question is, what do you do next? And I think if you can actually visualize the downsides and walk through what your next five choices will be, or even the next one, as long as you realize there are more choices, I think you can actually reduce your fear of failure and then you get to act. Like, so I'm, I'm always like when people are like, just visualize the positive, visualize the positive. I'm like, hmm, I don't know. In business, every deal I know that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person who was trained in business development. That's why I grew up my career. I'm like, you know, if you actually want to sign a deal all the expert negotiators spent all their time planning for the downside in order to actually sign the deal. They don't actually spend all their time creating better and better, better forecasts of how awesome the deal is going to be. They literally get their lawyers together and they map through the worst case scenarios and they create contingencies and then they sign the deal. Right. And I'm like, well, why don't we do that? Like, because it, I think that would get our fear equation kind of in the right, you know, right sided. We'd actively reduce the fear of failure and then we would act in our FOMO alone is not what we need to get us there. Right. And, and so what I'm understanding is that you, you do you embrace the FOMO a little bit and you think about what can happen, but then you also look at the fear of failure and, and, and are kind of understanding how to, to mitigate those risks. And then by doing that and planning for the downside, you're the, the FOMO kind of takes over and that's what allows somebody yeah, to take that, to take right, that because- chance. Right. Yeah, because ramping our FOMO is relatively easy, right? Like, like whenever we're excited, it's easy to get more excited, right? Like, and again, I'm a CEO. So I've seen tons of plans that people bring me where they're like detailed to the upside. This is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen, right? All their details are to the upside. And I'm like, well, you're not going to know until you make the first move. It may shake out the way you want. It may not. So like, you know, thinking through the volatility that's likely to happen after your first decision might actually make you more comfortable with moving forward, you might say to me as a CEO, like, hey, I made this plan, but I just want to tell you, there's a range of probabilities. It could be, you know, I could come in at half the number, I could come in at one and half the number. So here are the things I'm thinking about, and this is what I'm going to do after I take the first step. But right. really, I want to get into motion before I give you a perfect plan, because there's, you know, I can't tell you what it is perfectly if I if I don't have any data. So yeah, I'm a big fan of, of that, because I think it's really easy to ramp your FOMO. That's not the problem. The problem is that if, you're, if your fear of failure is still bigger than your FOMO, you won't act. So right. the harder job, not the harder job, the job that nobody talks about is if you can actively, you know, think about the downside and think it through, I think you have a much better chance of reducing your fear of failure. So what advice do you have for somebody that, cause you know, I know you and I were talking a little bit before we recorded and that most people, when they take, took your risk assessment, yeah. they're, they're contemplators. So if I'm mm-hmm. imagining somebody who's a contemplator and they're looking at taking a risk or making a change in their life, and they're looking at all these fear of failures and trying to, to plan for each downside and they're just stuck contemplating and they don't make, <laughs> they don't make a yeah, move. The decision. Yeah. yeah. What so, happens? Yeah. What, what advice do you have for somebody so that they don't get caught up in that like toxic cycle of just yep. contemplating decisions the rest of their life. Yeah, it's really good. First of all, and this is so obvious, but I'm going to say it, there's there three strategies I get people. 
Number one, you have to set a time frame. And that time frame doesn't have to be that time frame doesn't have to be for the maximum viable decision. That's what we call, you know, like making the big leap. I call it like a time frame and a minimum viable decision, meaning like what's the smallest increment of a decision you can make within a certain time frame that will progress you towards your goal. So you have to set a time frame to your point. You have to say like within the next month, I'm going to take some action, right? And I'm not saying the action has to be the biggest action, but I'm like, you have to commit a time frame and you have right. to commit to what I call the min DC. So of all the things you could do, pick it the smallest increment of something you could do that you'd be able to comfortable and you have to commit within a time frame to doing at least that. So I think that those are like two like very distinct strategies for contemplators. The third one is, as I said, is like, like resist the urge to create a plan on anything other than your iPhone or a whiteboard. Because mm -hmm. here, here's what happens with contemplators, even to the downside, to your point, right? Like to the upside or downside, they will just create sheets and sheets and reams and reams of details and details, right? And right. that's where you get lost in the planning. And I'm like, commit yourself to doing what I call a whiteboard plan, which is I want mm -hmm. you to sort of take your iPhone or take a, you know, what, and like, literally you have to get down. And if you end up with like 30 sheets of paper, then call that your background work. It can contain no more than like a headline goal and three to five bullet points on what you're going to do roughly to get there. So you can take all that reams of preparation, but you have to distill it to that. And then that's the plan you live by, right? Because everything in between that is just is data. And so I think the third thing you've got to, you know, work with people who are by nature, maybe contemplators, i.e. they can, they can think through everything, but they get lost in the decision making is like, okay, distill your plan to a whiteboard plan. If it's more than that, you're going to get lost. Like you can take all the rest and call it preparation. It's not a plan. It's just, it's just research. <laughs> Number right. two, and keep it and keep it high level and keep it evolving. Because the minute it's on our phone, I know about you, I keep all my plans on my phone because I can delete, erase and revise as I go. Like, I like that. Like, I like to seem like, oh, I got that wrong. I wipe it out. I never take away the headline goal, but I'm just like constantly deleting as I go and adding to it. As I, as I learn, set a time frame and commit to a minimum viable choice. Mm. I love that. I mean, what do they say? Uh, a goal without a, a deadline is just a wish or a dream or something. Yeah, and exactly. Right. Yeah. But when you, you know, you know, when people put a deadline on a big choice, this is where like, if you've never, if you're not comfortable with risk taking, you know, it can be daunting, right? Then that deadline comes and goes and you do nothing because your only choice is a big choice. I'm like, well, the only choice is the smallest choice then it's not, then, then it's much more likely you will actually hit your deadline. Right. Um, don't get me wrong. I have deadlines but for big choices too, but from there, I'm always working backwards to start, you know, taking smaller risks now ahead of a big choice. Yeah. And I, and think, I think you would, yeah, go ahead. I think it goes back to the point you make in your book and what you talk about, about the importance of proximity and taking action and mm -hmm. just kind of putting yourself mm -hmm. in the position to have mm -hmm. success versus just planning and I, and I know you say that, yeah, you can um, get yourself in proximity and plan. That's kind of where the the perfect blend happens. But in For order sure. to, to kind of get there, you really have to put yourself in the room. And one of the one of the best books I've ever read, you, you might know this, you might know him because he's pretty big in the tech space is The Startup of You by Reed Hoffman. And yes, yes. Yeah, I have his book on my shelf. I know yeah. Reed, he's great. Yeah, it was one of the best books I ever read. Just on the importance of like really investing in yourself and taking the time mm -hmm. to do that sort of thing. And and a lot of what the proximity kind of reminds me of this, where you have to kind of put yourself out there. So explain the, the importance of proximity because people maybe who are listening to this, maybe they're not as familiar with it because of the, the business nature of it or the personal development, mm -hmm. how it works in personal development. So so why is per proximity much more important than just planning in itself. Sure. And by the way, I think you're right. Like I obviously, I talk about proximity a lot with regard to our career choices, but it applies multiple places. So when you create a plan, right, we're it, like, would we agree that like people, when you create a plan, we tend to, tend to think that like it's certainty. A plan isn't certainty, right? A plan is a plan. You still don't know what's going to happen. So a plan has inherent volatility, but somehow by writing down all our steps, we think we've taken the volatility out of a situation. We haven't. Like always, you know, but what we've done is imagine what we need to do and that has utility. But imagine if you can't imagine what you need to do because you just don't know enough. Like, like how can you be educated enough to make a plan if you don't, don't know about a thing? So let's say, so then like, where do you go to become an expert? Like, where do you go to even know enough to what kind of plan you need to form? You just put yourself around people who are naturally good at that thing, right? So I'm making it up. Let's say 
you want to lose 25 pounds and, you know, or 50 pounds or a hundred pounds. And you really like, you don't know all the strategies, but maybe you have a friend who's a nutritionist or you know, maybe you have a friend who goes to the gym regularly, or maybe you have a friend who, you know, lost 30 pounds, or maybe, you know, maybe there's a group at the gym that exercises all together. These are all ways, which like before you ever develop the finite plan, you just want to get proximate to people who know what they're doing because mm-hmm. you learn by osmosis. Sometimes you learn because I'm the actively coaches you, you know, we also learn when we get to apprentice under people, right? So, you know, like that's very applicable in the case of a career change. You're like, hey, I want to, I don't know, I want to, I've always dreamed about, you know, running my own fitness business and I don't know how. Well, then maybe one of the ways to get proximate is literally like, hey, maybe you can go apprentice in the evenings, you know, be, you know, volunteer in a class with a fitness studio, you know, in a fitness studio, you, you know, with an instructor you admire, like, and just volunteer because all you're trying to do is like apprentice to some, somebody who has knowledge, so I always feel like when you get proximate, two things happen. Like just by osmosis, you learn what you need to do. Two, those people are like, you know, creating opportunities all the time that you can take advantage of. And three, it informs the plan you ultimately build. So I, I'm, it's not that I'm not for planning. It's that I'd rather be learning before I plan as opposed to planning without knowing anything <laughs> and planning from afar, planning from such a distance, like... So like, I, like, I, I love the idea of proximity and, and in my own career, proximity has been everything. When you get proximate, like, and closer to opportunities, opportunities also come faster to people who, you know, who naturally know what they're doing. And just, if you're around them and you, you know, surround yourself with people who know what they're doing, you, you can't help but figure it out too. Yeah. I, I know you, you really emphasize the, the who and who you surround yourself with in your book mm-hmm. and how important that is. And, and you're right. Like, what do they say? I, I know they also, like, they say that if you're the smartest person in the room, it's time to get another room because mm-hmm. like, if you're the smartest person in that room, then, then odds are you're probably not growing because the people mm-hmm. that are in that room with you just maybe, maybe they're helping you in some ways, but most of the time they're, they're not lifting you up or, or you're not learning mm-hmm. as much from them. Whereas if you get into a room with people that are smarter than you making, taking higher Mm -hmm. risks, more calculated risks, making better choices, healthier, thriving in business, thriving with their families. You're going to start to become that person because you're right through osmosis. We are a creature Mm -hmm. of our environment. And -hmm. something that I found really fascinating in your book that really kind of hit home was why the the who is so much more important than the what when -hmm. it comes to, I mean, that's just business, but anything in life and how, Mm -hmm. when you're looking for a job or you're looking for, to make a change, like really paying attention to who and not the what. Why is why is that so important for people to pay attention to? Well, uh, you know, it's funny. We are often told to follow our passions. And I am passionate about certain topics. You're passionate about certain topics. And I believe you don't have to give up passion. But passions change, right? So our past, like today we may be passionate about fitness. Tomorrow we might be passionate about skiing. The week after we might be passionate about art. Like, and I don't mean it's so frivolous, but, you know, our interests change over time, right? So people tell you, like, well, go after what you're passionate about. But sometimes I'm not even passionate until I learn about something and then I get more passionate about it. But when we put ourselves to your point in, like, proximity to people who are great at anything, at what they do, they have something to teach us. Two things happen. Like, the work we do becomes more joyful when we're, like, hanging with people or, by the way, the relationships we're in or the friendships we're in, Right. When we're hanging with people who share our values, but are different from us, that's the kind of unique combination, I think, like people who have something to teach us, whatever it is, like I've been lucky enough, my husband is very different from me, every boss I've ever had is is different from me, like, wait, I thrive when I've been around people who are teaching me a better way to operate or a new way to operate or something I just don't know, and who compliment me. But by the same token, underlying the reason I'm so comfortable to hang with those people and I feel like I can be at my best is because we have the same values. Like, you know, we move through the world with the same worldview. And so, you know, I, I think when we're like with the right two, we do our best work. Our work is more enjoyable. And in the case of career, certainly the who even dictates what you can work on. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. if you're, you know, it's like say you entered the sports field and you love it, but you have a boss who like basically doesn't let you do anything but the most menial tasks. Like, okay, you're in sports, but you may not, you know, you may not have any exposure. They don't trust you with anything, like to the thing you actually want to do, but that's all a function of the who you're working with. So I sort of, I, I feel like this magical combination happens in our lives. We can be at our most secure and take our own risks and make the best contributions. One with, with people whose like view of like what's just and fair and good in the world is kind of the same as ours. So we feel safe. 
but who are very different than us, right? And who teach us things that we otherwise would never know, you know, anyway. And so we get to, get to play to our best friends, they get to play to theirs. Yeah, I, that's my that's my belief system. Yeah, and and I think it's it's really important because you see a lot of people that are just miserable with what they're doing in life. They're miserable at work. They're miserable at home. And it's because of the people that they're around. Right. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of times Mm -hmm. it comes back to how they feel about themselves and are not worthy Mm -hmm. of actually Mm -hmm. surrounding themselves or putting themselves in a position where they are in a thriving environment or where they are respected or where they are, Mm -hmm. you know, thought of valued and regarded in a high manner. Right. Yep. Yeah. That's true. I mean, it's so, yeah, in any situation, the who is so much more important than the what. Of course, I think we should both work with great people and do what we love or be with great people and do what we love, whatever, you know, whether it's your personal professional life, but who we surround ourselves with fundamentally dictates, you know, our ability to contribute and feel good about ourselves. Right. And so you also, you also talk about the importance of having some like non-biased people in your life. I think you call them Mm -hmm. professional priests that Yes. <laughs> you can you can kind of lean on when you're you're looking to yeah. make important decisions and I think this goes for personally and professionally like it's not mm-hmm. like they, they they often say like the people closest to you when they try to give you advice you're you're least likely to take it because I don't know what I don't know yeah. what why maybe it's because of the emotional connection or you take you tend to take things more personally or, or what have you but like what advice do you have for somebody who's listening to this like maybe they're not like somebody who's actively looking to change their career or actively yeah. looking for a new job like like to get people in their life that can help mm-hmm. them make make better decisions when they're faced with a, cho- a choice or when they're faced with yeah. adversity. Well, you're hitting, I think you're hitting a, a couple of things that are key, right? Like, first of all, in our lives, we often think that one person is to play all roles. And that's really hard. By the way, it's hard on that person. Remember, we were just having this conversation about like the people we want to surround ourselves with, but let's think about the most important people in our life and who they want to surround themselves with. Like, I'm not sure. I, I always say like, I know my marriage would not survive if my husband had to answer and listen and hold a hundred percent of my career angst. Do you know what I mean? That's not his problem to be there, to have me be miserable with him all the time. <laughs> like, right. Like there's different people I can go to. And by the way, he may or may not be the best person to advise me in that situation anyway. But the reality is when we lean on one person to play all roles, that person there's a very heavy and undue burden in addition to the fact that they may be unbiased, right? So we, we may be taking energy from a relationship where that person is also looking for energy from us, particularly when we're troubled, you know that. So that's, that's piece one. They may be biased, but we're also stopping, you know, maybe a sacred space from the energy it needs to thrive. So that's, that's one reason to not make the one person everything uh, in your life, like, you know. And then in terms of how to find these folks, well, the good news is like, I would say whatever your situation is like, there are people that we encounter, you know, that maybe are one degree removed from us. Like in the case of making a career choice, it might be, you know, somebody you worked with on a partnership at another company that you admire, who you thought was fun. It might be somebody who's not in your division, but who's somebody you respect and admire. Like, I think when it comes to professional priests, it's somewhat easier, right? Because the people one or two degrees from us who quite frankly have no vested interest in whether we make a choice or not. But maybe somewhere in our interactions with them, we respected what they had to say, or, you know, you know, we had some glimpse of what working with them, and they, they had some glimpse of working with us that might give us some, them some sense of who we are, and what we're capable of, but without necessarily being invested in the outcome. So I think professional priests are a little easier, because we interact with so many people in our professional lives, right? And I think when we think about personal priests, they're most likely, most likely often to be, you know, a close friend or a relative who maybe is not our direct partner. And in some cases, you know, this people hire life coaches. I have a business coach. Like there are people who are there to support us, but maybe have no vested interest in our personal life, but can completely hold sacred, you know, what we have to say and hold confidential that. And so I think in your personal life, if you feel like you're in, you know, everybody around you is in a very, it's very difficult for you to confide in. Like, honestly, the idea of finding somebody who, you know, a counselor, a therapist, what have you, its value is a sacred space where somebody really has no skin in the game, but can reflect back to you what's going on. So I'm a fan of any of those solutions, quite frankly. But in our personal lives, in our professional lives, what I often find to be true is it's hard to expect our singular spouse to be the person who holds it all. There are personal coach, there are professional coach, you know, they're expected to be unbiased, yet they also need something from our relationship. Like, I think that's a really undue burden to put on, you know, your partner. And I think we often think our partner is supposed to be all those things to us. 
I'm not quite so sure. <laughs> right. Oh, no, I love how you, how you said that because you're right. It's, it's unfair to put that burden onto one person, just like you wouldn't want to be the person where you're mm-hmm. the one that's like providing all the support for every area of somebody's life or multiple people's lives that would become very depleting. You would get emotionally drained yeah. and then you wouldn't be the best version of yourself and you wouldn't be able to thrive in life. And I want to stay on the topic. Well, I want to, like, speaking of priests and this, I want to stay on mm-hmm. this for a second because it's going to yes. dovetail nicely into talking about success. I was listening um, to TD Jakes's podcast this morning at the gym. And he said, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but pastor TD Jakes, and he was saying mm-hmm. that those who get high on success, it was something like if those who get high on success will also be drugged by failure. It was something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that is so true because it's like, there, mm-hmm. it's like, I think in life, the people who thrive the most are the people who, are spo- who, are, who can stay even keel throughout the ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So you talk about success in the book a lot and, and really how to, how to have success, but you, you, the way you uh, articulate it is in a way where people shouldn't just focus on success in itself. They should focus on mm-hmm. impact. What advice mm-hmm. do you have for somebody who is, is starting something, whether it's a fitness journey or whether it's a new job or whether it's a new relationship where they're looking at the shiny objects or looking at, you know, how, how they're going to look in the mirror, or they're looking at what people mm-hmm. are going to say about them, or they're looking at the, the cars they might get or whatever, mm-hmm and really focus on what's important that will help get them there long-term. Yeah. It's that, well, first of all, like, by the way, you know, we all focus on having success. I motivate myself just like you do. Like I want to be skinnier. I'm imagining the dress I'm going to be in like, make no mistake. I have like big goals and I imagine big success as well, but here's what I've learned. And you know, this any larger goal is the result of multiple outcomes. Okay. If you want to be, if you want to be, you know, healthier, it's likely, or if you want to lose weight, it's likely you're also going to improve your nutrition. You're going to get on a fitness plan. You know, you may go see your doctor more regularly. There'll be a bunch of outcomes, right? That add up to that bigger goal. And so when you focus on the bigger goal, we don't know yet today if we're going to achieve it or not. But I always say to people, if you focus on delivering single outcomes, I don't know of any big success that is achieved without first achieving a bunch of outcomes. And at some point, those outcomes compound, right? And they, and, and they, they like they the benefits build on top of each other and then you reach your big goal, right? In some other cases, we fail. We do not get the original goal we intended, but we still built a bunch of outcomes. And those outcomes in and of themselves have value. And you can reconfigure them and into and and go on an entirely new journey, right? And get an entirely different reward. So I'll say to people like think of success like a like a puzzle. Because when we all solve a puzzle, we never try and solve the whole puzzle. We solve pieces, right? We solve the rim. You know, sometimes people take portions of a a puzzle and they solve by color. Like you and I can solve a puzzle different ways, right? Let's admit there are some puzzles that never get solved. Literally, we have like five different pieces and the puzzle eludes us. It doesn't mean that you can't go reconfigure that puzzle and put together all those outcomes you achieve and achieve something entirely new. So to your point, maybe on your way to, you know, losing weight, you don't lose 100 pounds, but you lose 50. And along the way, you find that you love nutrition and you become a better cook. And lo and behold, like, you know, you're on an entirely different journey where, you know, you become a nutritionist or, you know, you end up creating healthy meals for your family or you discover a love of biking. Like, we don't know what all those outcomes are going to produce. We, we're trying to put them all together to meet the final puzzle. And if we do, that's amazing. And if we don't, each of those outcomes stays with you, right? And as long as you're delivering individual outcomes, you can reconfigure that picture to find entirely new success. So, that is fundamentally the way I think about it. Of course, I aim for the larger picture. Of course, I'm trying to compound all the benefits of these individual outcomes I've created. Of course. But you know, at this point in my life, I also know that if I can deliver impact, even if I never deliver the final goal, if I've delivered pieces of impact, you know what? I am more content if I fail to, I'm not content, but I'm more content that I have done something of value on the way to success and that I will reap some other reward and success from it, even if it's not what I originally imagined. But that's only true if I deliver outcomes first. So outcomes are discrete. Outcomes have milestones. Outcomes are calculable. Outcomes are usually shorter term than the longer success. But the good news is like you can't have success without the outcomes. You can't have outcomes and still not have the goal you originally anticipated, but you will deliver something valuable to the world and to yourself. So, you know, that's the only way I contend with failure now, right? I can look back and be like, did I deliver impact? Did I deliver outcomes? Did I make something better for myself or someone along the way? 
And can I take those things that I learn and reconfigure them towards a new goal? And if I can, I can get to peace with failure. You know, when I can't get to peace with failure, when I freaking tried and I delivered no outcome, no impact, those are the most brutal failures because you're like, wow, like, did I deliver anything on this journey? And now, by the way, that's never true, right? You always, you, you know, but when we fail to have impact, it's actually far more pa- painful than when we fail to achieve maybe the goal we originally imagined. Going to have impact is more heartbreaking, actually. Yeah. And I think it comes back to, I know you talk about this, this, like, this sandwich, a self-awareness sandwich in, in your book, if you will. And it, and it really gets down to like our core beliefs and our core values. And I mm-hmm. think when we, we take a chance or we take a risk that's aligned with our values and where we want to go in life and we fail, we feel mm-hmm. a lot better because we view it almost as a stepping stone than if we're yes. taking a chance and we fail at something that's not aligned with our values. And maybe we're doing it because you know somebody thought it, it was cool on social media or a relative mm-hmm. said to do it or somebody else said to do it. And then we're like, man, I knew I shouldn't have done that in the first place. So you <laughs> yeah. feel even worse because it wasn't aligned with who, with you, who were, you are, right? Or what you want, you know, that, those, you're right. Those are like, those risks are more painful, right? When you take them because you're going on somebody else's journey, which we, you know, we've all been tempted to do, right? Or done, like, it's sort of like, that's when you follow the shiny object, right? If the shiny object is something that's aligned with who you are and what you want, all the better, I get it. Like I pursue shiny objects too. Like, but, but like I said, I, I now, I, I now recognize that if I can deliver impact, um, and multiple impacts, I can contend with, you know, the risk of failure. Right. On the and, ultimate goal. And I want to dive into to one of your other myths that you talk about. And that's like the risk first reward. Because a yeah. lot of people, they just assume that if you take this massive risk, that it's automatically going to generate a big reward. And And in some cases, like I can see that where like you look at the stock market, for example, if you invest in stocks and equities... Mm-hmm that's a bigger risk than investing, say, in like a bond. And mm-hmm. you're going to probably make more money long-term investing in equities than you would if you just invested 100% of your money in bonds. But I want to get into like what you, how you describe it, because I think it was very fascinating. And then also, how can somebody know if a risk that, that they're taking is something that is aligned with themselves and that's actually a good risk to take? Yeah, both are great questions. So first of all, so... Over the course of a lifetime, I, like you, believe if you take more risk, you will achieve more rewards. So I'm not saying that there's not a correlation, right? <laughs> but I think it's almost about frequency of risk and size of risk, because what we often think is like we take a single big risk and we get a single big reward. Well, it's not quite that simple, right? Because <clears throat> I've had little risks in my life that ended up being big rewards. Nobody would call going to Google, you know, when it was 1,200 people, a particularly big risk. I went when it was profitable, it was about to be public, yet the reward for that little risk was outsized compared to, you know, many times I've been an entrepreneur, and quite frankly, I got many rewards, but financially, just, you know, they didn't all work out, despite the size of the risk I took initially, right? So we expect this correlation, like if we took a big risk, we need to be rewarded for it bigly. And I think it's if you take many risks frequently, you will cumulatively be rewarded, but the timing may not be what you expect. Little risk can be big out, big rewards. Big risk can be no rewards or big failures or little failures. They can fizzle. You thought it was a big risk. And quite frankly, it turned out to not be one at all. But I think it's this correlation of single risk, single reward that's hard to predict, right? It's like, to your point, it's like that stock market analogy. Like maybe, you know, if you look at stock pickers, there are very few people in the world who are very successful at, you know, in the stock market because they took one made one big singular bet as a stock trader that worked out, okay? Over like stock traders who are successful are successful over time because they have a basket of risks and they take risks consistently, some small, some big, and they become calculated risk takers. And that doesn't mean that every single risk they took worked out. It means they're working a portfolio of risks over time and cumulatively their portfolio rises disproportionately, right? But it's about the frequency it's not about one single bet because one single bet, my friends, is called being lucky. Like if you like take one massive risk in your life and that one works out, if you want to bet your life on luck, like knock yourself out. I'd like to bet on a portfolio of risk, one of which I might get extraordinarily lucky on or one of which I might be extraordinarily unlucky on. But it's about the basket portfolio, you know, portfolio of risk over time. And so I think risk reward does have a correlation, but it's in I said, like, it's multiples. Do you know what I mean? It's like, because you don't know any single risk if it's going to work out the way you want. But you know you can become better at risk-taking by taking small and big risks, 
learning from each. And cumulatively, your portfolio will grow at an outsized rate. But that's far more likely to happen if you take multiple risks than if you take one risk. (laughs) That's the challenge. If you try to pick, be the perfect stock picker, good luck with that strategy. If you're trying to be the perfect choice maker, like there's one, the good news for you is, you know, like like this doesn't work that way. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think success, I think impact, I think purpose, I think anything meaningful in life comes from taking many small steps. You've got it. Many small wins. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And maybe a couple big wins in there too, right? Right. Like it's like, not like you never take a big risk, but you, you add it. It's an, it's an accumulation of choices before you get the reward. It's not a single choice. It's not a single risk reward. It just never is. Right. No, I love that. And you're so right because like, it's just, I think, like I said, it's just over time, these things add up and sure. Like some of these smaller risks that you never thought would add up to anything, like maybe ha- might have like a massive impact that you never thought yeah. could come of it. And the same goes for you take this, this risk that's bigger that you just in your gut, you think is going to pay off tremendously. And it just doesn't. Right. So the last question I have for you, it kind of revolves around the title of your book, choose possibility. And I think when, you know, when we're choosing possibility, what we like in order to get there, we have to, to have this mindset where we think something's possible. Right. Mm-hmm. And I know you talk about that in your book as well. And there's people that when they lose a job, they, they fall out of a relationship, they have a health scare, they have something that, that they're in a rut. They fall into that victim mindset that, you know, you've mm-hmm. alluded to not falling into, like not getting into that trap a couple of mm-hmm. times in the show. Like what advice do you have for somebody who's listening to this, where they're just feeling that impossible mindset? where they're not mm-hmm. feeling like they're going to be able to accomplish whatever it is they're, they're, they're setting out to do. Like how can somebody rewire their mindset? Well, it's interesting. So there's some people who believe that you can rewire, like you can probably tell from this podcast where my biases are. So I'll reveal them in a moment. There's some people who believe you can rewire your mi- mindset simply psychologically. Me, I'm somebody who believes that you can learn to be an optimist through execution. So, you know, it's like, it's sort of like, how do you rewire from bias, right? Right. Like I do some work in diversity and inclusion, as you know, people are like, well, how do you change yourself on bias? It's like, well, look, bias is so inherent, right? So if you said to somebody like, just become unbiased, that's really hard. But if you said to people like, here are the practices that you have to practice, right? That will sort of train you. And over time, you can rewire how your brain works subconsciously, but it starts with just conscious movement. Because if I just told you to rewire your brain, how can you do that? But I'm going to like, okay, like, these are the practices to become less biased. And like you build a pipeline of candidates, right? You have to have screening criteria. They're very tactical actions you take. And over time, you can start to unlearn your biases. This is the same belief I have about risk-taking. I'm like, or possibility. Let's say you're an, a pessimist. I'm not going to tell you like, hey, tomorrow be an optimist. What I'm going to say to you is like, okay, I've given you some very practical tips, really practical, like make a list of choices, you know, risks you can take today to learn something. The only thing I'm going to ask you to do is like, Today, take a little risk. Tomorrow, take a little risk. The day after. And I believe that over time, as you see the results of the risks you're taking, however micro, you will actually start to learn that like everything didn't turn out as badly as you think. And perhaps you can start to train yourself to be a bit more optimistic. But if I just say to you, be optimistic, like that's not very helpful. It's like, it's like saying to you, like, just be unbiased. Like, okay, well, well how? <laughs> so the weird and and the weird thing is we often, you know, yes, we all might have certain tendencies. Maybe I'm more introverted, I'm more extroverted, you're more introverted, I'm more optimistic by nature, you're more pessimistic. It kind of doesn't matter. When it comes to risk taking, the hopefulness in it is like if by the practice of just taking little risks, you get the data that that helps you unwire or rewire your brain. That may be your path to choosing possibility. I'm not here to tell you, you know, that I can, like, you know, that like we all don't have certain tendencies. But I think it's in the practice because I think that like practice can then sort of retrain us. And I believe that's true of anything, right? Because I think it's really hard to go the other way <laughs> where right. you just say to somebody, like, be optimistic. I'm like, okay, well, I've had a lifetime of like, you know, learning this. So I don't know. Practice sometimes needs to forerun our attitudes, right? And they change our attitudes. When we try and just change our attitudes in a vacuum, I I appreciate how hard that is. Right. Absolutely. And I I think confidence, I think self-worth, I think like an optimistic outcome comes from taking action, taking risks, taking small steps, and really like doing the thing, committing to the things that 
you say you're going to do. Right. And I think confidence is, isn't built at the top of the mountain, right? Confidence is built on the way up, continuing to persevere, continuing to move forward and continuing to get back up after each time uh, that you fail and working that risk muscle, working that adversity muscle, working that Mm -hmm. perseverance muscle. So, so Kinder, this has been awesome. I think people are going to get a lot out of this, this episode. So where can people find out more about you? If they want to buy your book, if they want to connect with you, where can people do that? Well, and first of all, thanks for having me. It was super, super fun. You can buy the book, any, any bookstore you like, Amazon on app, it's on pre-order till August 17th. And as you said, by the time this comes out, the book will be out. I've got a website where you can take a risk quiz. You took it, which I appreciate, Doug. I took it too. It's really fun. It's simple. And that's choosepossibility.com. And you can always find me mostly on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter, but you know, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn and on Instagram. I'm available, but I kind of hide because that's just another commitment to like looking good or perfect that I, you know, mostly I'm like, <laughs> I don't have time to squeeze in. So you can find me on Instagram, but I'm not nearly as active as I am on LinkedIn. Love it. I will make sure to put all the links to those things in the show notes and people, and I think people are going to really want to go out and buy your book. It's awesome. I learned a lot. Even if you're not somebody who's looking to change careers or in the business world, you'll get a ton of valuable information out of the book. And so I encourage y'all to check it out. And like I try to always encourage y'all to do, share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that she said with regards to risks. Maybe it was something that she said with regards to her departure at StubHub. Maybe it was something she said about like who you surround yourself with. Whatever it was, like share a takeaway, tag me, tag Sukinder, and uh, mention the book. And just let us know what you thought. We love to hear feedback. And uh, we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. We'll see you next time.